Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Maybe one department or area of our business is really knocking it out the water when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But a, a very different, you know, department or part of the business has a totally different experience. So one person in the same organization could have very different experiences. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind. In the process. Welcome to the show. Glad you can be with us today. I'm excited to talk with today's guest. And uh, before we introduce our guest, I want to thank you again for making this one of the top leadership podcasts in the world and uh, and one of the top 10% of podcasts in the world. It's due to your sharing the show. Uh, I mentioned a couple episodes back, I, I think, uh, learning from some of these statistics coming in that uh, the show gets shared a lot by WhatsApp. So all of you WhatsAppers out there, thank you for sharing and any other way that you are making other leaders and managers aware of these human-centered leadership tools and strategies. Appreciate that and appreciate your reviews. All right, let's get to it. I want to introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Dr. Ella F. Washington, and uh, she's the author of a book called The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion, and that is published by Harvard Business Review. Uh, so a little bit about our guest. She is an organizational psychologist who finds inspiration through the intersection of business, diversity, and leadership. She has a global consulting experience uh, in financial services, sports and entertainment, oil and gas, higher education, and government, and is the founder and CEO of Elevate Solutions. Her research and client work focus on structural barriers to inclusion for diverse groups in the workplace and on working with organizations to build inclusive cultures. She also works one-on-one -on -one with leaders to develop their inclusive leadership skills. And previously, she's worked at Gallup as a diversity and inclusion subject matter expert. And she, uh, Dr. Ella is on the management faculty at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. So we're here again to talk about her latest book, the Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. Dr. L.F. Washington, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much for having me, David. A pleasure to be here. I am so glad that uh, we are able to do this. It took some doing and finagling and we got it in, we got it done. So I'm glad you're here. So uh, Dr. Ella, I want to ask you if you could take us back to one of your earliest memories of yourself as a leader. As far back as you'd like to go, what's one of the first memories that comes up for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think you have to think about formal and informal leadership, right? Your um, choice. So when I think about formal leadership, it was probably like in middle school, maybe when I was elected for like my first student leader position um, of sorts. You know, I've never been a shy person. I've always been pretty outgoing and, you know, kind of ready to take on the mantle of leadership. Um, but finding my voice is something that I have worked on and will continue to work on probably forever, but especially early in life. And, you know, it's one thing when you are elected to a position to hold, that was easy for me. I think when I think about my early leadership experiences, what was harder was being confident in my own opinions and being confident in the things that I actually wanted to see change. And as you get older and these leadership positions become more than just notional, right, that becomes much more important. So um, those are some of my, I think, earliest memories of leadership. It's mm, powerful. Do you have a, when you talk about finding your confidence, it's something I, I rec I've uh, recognized myself just in a small part of that statement with a coach years ago, who's telling me, you know, you don't need more training right now, David, just have the confidence to lead. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown adult in a formal leadership position. And she's telling me just have the confidence. Well, going that far back and that confidence in your voice and your perspective and what you wanted to see changed. 
what helped you develop that confidence? Were there some pivotal moments or, or mentors or experiences? I think mentors have played a huge role um, in that sense of confidence to speak out and to uh, lean on what you already know. Um, to me, it's it's not just about self-confidence. It's about trusting yourself, right? And I guess those two concepts are related. But you know, for, for much of what I'm thinking about, it wasn't that I had something new and groundbreaking to say, you know, after I got the coaching or after I read the, the article, what have you, it was all in my mind. I just had to trust myself that I knew what I was talking about. And when you go through a higher education program, such as a PhD, as I did, and many people can probably attest to that from all different types of programs, you doubt yourself a lot because you're, you're told you are wrong most of the time. And you usually are right uh, from their perspective, but it's, you know, it's not a switch that goes off when you receive your uh, PhD that, okay, now you're the expert. It's like, you were always the expert. You became the expert over time, but to have that trusting yourself is, is really important. And so I'd say mentors play a huge role in that, but also just kind of leaping, right? Just being put in situations where you have to trust yourself. You have to speak and you have to say things and, you know, hopefully it lands with someone. I love that. It's also bringing to mind a question that isn't explicit in the necessary journey, but I think it's related. So, and I, I'm definitely eager to get into the book, but while we're on this topic of trusting yourself, being a leader of any kind who, who wants to invest in building a more equitable, inclusive workplace and doing that work, there is this balance, optimization, this intersection of trusting yourself and also realizing that you can't trust everything that you think or that you know or believe because it's not all as good as it could be. And whatever our life experiences might have been in the past, we're limited mm -hmm. and, and curtailed by our perspective and experiences, and there's more to learn. So I'm curious how you recommend leaders, the leaders you work with, how do you help them navigate that? Yes, trust yourself and leaving room for learning. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. And I think both can exist. You can trust yourself and know that you're not perfect. Um, you can trust yourself and know that you have and probably will continue to make some mistakes. Um, and I think that is part of trusting yourself is like knowing that, hey, I'm, I might mess up, but I'm going to navigate through it. I'm going to lead with authenticity. I'm going to own my mistakes. I'm going to be a bit vulnerable when I mess up so that I can learn from it, but also other people around me can learn from it. So I think that sense of owning your mistakes in my book, I talk about it as pitfalls that organizations have, but we also have them as individuals, those things holding us back from kind of where we want to be. We have to own those. And though you can also trust yourself once you've been really clear about what you're trying to achieve. And you're, so for example, if I'm trying to make sure that my team knows that I'm someone that they can come talk to no matter what, right? Um, I can trust in myself in that, that through that vulnerability, through those opportunities to show my human side, um, I can do that, you know, while also still learning. Um, so yeah, I think both can, can certainly coexist and are necessary. Absolutely. Part of what I'm hearing you say is that part of the trust you can have in yourself is the trust to, I trust myself to remain curious, to take responsibility when I realize that something I, I was doing or a way of being was not helping or was hurting others. And uh, I can trust myself to learn and grow from those. Absolutely. Remaining curious is one of those critical leadership skills. I don't think it's enough light of day. Yeah, we shine. A, a, we got we got several spotlights on curiosity on this show. I'll tell you <laughs> that. So, that it comes up just about every episode. So vital. All right, let's get into the book. It's called The Necessary Journey. Again, we're talking with Dr. Ella F. Washington. Subtitle of the book: Necessary Journey: Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. And uh, Dr. Ella, just uh, at the fifty thousand foot view of this book, this is a book of stories, and there are so many books and approaches on this topic that focus on, uh, not that you don't have a model, you do, and I want to get into it, but models, theories, tactics, and you have taken a different approach here to share stories. And I am curious what motivated you to go about writing this book this way. 
So DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, for those listening, it can be intimidating. It can be an intimidating topic for someone who doesn't quite know enough about it, or maybe has not had exposure. Maybe they're just starting on their journey. And, you know, what I really wanted to come through in this book is a connection point for with anyone, no matter where they are at their journey, maybe they're just starting, or maybe they're really in a mature place of their DEI journey, but we're all somewhere on that spectrum. We're all on the journey. And one thing I know to be true is that stories and, and narratives, they are what actually connect with people, right? You know, as a researcher, I know the power of data and I know the power and persuasion of, you know, having all of your points lined up and that's great. But what we know even more than data that helps to change minds and hearts and lead to different action, what people will actually remember are those stories, are those real life experiences, are those moments that tuck at your heartstrings or bring up some emotion. And so I thought, like, why not do this from the organizational approach? Why not tell the stories of these organizations and how they have triumphed? how they've challenged themselves, how they've fallen sometimes on their DEI journey. Um, from a big picture perspective, there were so many, you know, clients and, and other folks asking me, okay, where are we on the journey? Like everyone talks about this journey concept. It's not a new concept. I didn't make that up. <laughs> We've heard it, but we hear it in a lot of spaces, but even in the world of DEI, it's it's been a popular notion that this is a journey. And many people would say it, but they wouldn't really know what that meant. Like what happens in the journey. We just keep saying that we're on a journey. And so my goal when this book was to one, highlight some really dynamic stories that show us companies that haven't quite gotten it right, but they're on their way and they're really trying um, and they're super honest about it. And then two, I want every single person who reads this book um, to be able to see themselves in it in some way. Mm. Well, it definitely accomplishes that. There are a wide variety of different stories, and I do think that anybody reading it's going to have that experience. So I think mission accomplished, at least from my perspective. Excellent. So let's get into that journey a little bit. Uh, there is You do uh, ground everything in uh, a five-step process that organizations go through. Um, in their stages of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Would you mind running us through those five? So we kind of have that as an anchor point, and then we'll take it from there. Certainly. So in this model, the first step is always going to be awareness. Um, and when you think about awareness, it's, it's twofold. It's what does DEI mean for us? Um, what does it mean tangibly? Like, what do we mean when we say diversity? And, and in our organization, what does diversity look like? Um, and where do we want to be as well? So in that awareness stage, you're also kind of setting the stage of what is our purpose? Like, who do we want to be in this space? We're not all, you know, out here trying to uh, change the world, um, but maybe we want to have a significant impact on our community, right? Maybe we are trying to change the world and that's great, but no two companies have the exact same purpose when it comes to this. And when we talk about purpose, you want to also make sure that, you know, what you're trying to achieve from a DEI perspective is in alignment with your organizational mission and purpose. That's critical. So all of that happens at the awareness stage. Ideally, it happens when the, the organization is first forming. But as we know, many organizations have had to kind of take a step back in the past few years and saying, okay, we didn't quite get this right at the beginning. Let's get it right now. And so they kind of go back to that awareness stage. The second stage is compliance. And compliance is all about making sure that we are not violating any regulations or laws or, you know, things that would get us in trouble. And compliance is often seen as a bad thing. I don't think of it as a bad thing. I think it's a necessary part of the journey. You got to make sure you're you're doing the right things and you're in alignment with your, your local and federal regulations, but you can't stop there. And the reason why it's an important part of the journey is that many companies especially in the 1990s and early 2000s, they were like, what do we have to do to not be on a headline and not get sued? And they kind of stopped there. They didn't go beyond that. And what we want to see companies go is go beyond that compliance stage into the third stage um, that is much more tactical. It's a tactical stage. And at that tactical stage, 
you know, we see so many different things and many organizations do get stuck here because they have great intentions. They're mm -hmm. starting to figure out how to actually apply uh, their goals for DEI in different parts of their organization, but they run into challenges. So many times, you know, internally we're doing great, but externally we haven't thought too critically um, and that holds us up. Or maybe one department or area of our business is really knocking it out the water when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But a, a very different, you know, department or part of the business has a totally different experience. So one person in the same organization could have very different experiences. In the tactical stage, you see some success with DEI efforts. Maybe you have lots of programs, um, but you don't have an integrated strategy that looks across the entire, entire sphere of influence of the organization. So that's what we see at the tactical phase. It's not about how much money you're spending. It's not about how many programs you have. It's about, do you have an integrated strategy that looks internally and externally and that you can truly say DEI is part of everything that we do? And most organizations can't say that, and they're at that tactical stage. To get beyond that, to the integrated stage, um, that is when you can truly say, okay, looking across a whole sphere of influence, not that we're perfect, but we have uh, been thoughtful and intentional about how diversity, equity, and inclusion shows up in each places um, of our sphere of influence. Um, we're confident that DEI has been integrated into you know, everything that we do, at least in some way. Can, can we pause there? We're at four. Yeah. So we've got awareness, compliance, tactical, and then integrated. And you mentioned, just as we're defining terms, um, the integration both internally and externally. Can you walk us through what you mean by internal and external? Yeah, when you think about internal, you're, you're thinking about your employees for the most part. Um, you're thinking about, you know, people at every level of the organization. You're also thinking about the employee life cycle. What is the experience of people as they, you know, first learn about your organization, apply to work there, work there, and then maybe leave the organization. So that's where you're really focused. Um, but then you want to go beyond that. What about your external stakeholders? What about uh, your suppliers, uh, your vendors? What what about your competitors within the industry? How are you connecting with or, you know, working with them to help, um, you know, in the world of DEI? Um, you could also think about the communities you're actually physically located in, right? You know, lots of businesses come in, make these big changes to those communities and they don't think about, you know, the impact they may have had on their computer communities or how they can have a positive impact. So all of those things are I think, going a bit more externally. And then as you go to the even more broad landscape, when you are thoughtful about DEI at every place in that sphere of influence, you've at least been attentive to how we can make things more equitable for our customers, for example, um, how we can make things more equitable within our industry. If there's an industry pipeline problem, maybe we figured it out internally, but what can we do to help our industry more broadly? All right. Thank you for that clarification. Appreciate it. Okay. Take us to number five. Yes. So the fifth but not final stage is sustainable. And the reason why I say it's the fifth but not final is because the work is never done, right? So you do want to get to a place at the sustainable uh, stage where, you know, DEI um, is not just a flavor of the month. DEI remains steadfast um, through changes in leadership many organizations will have like a, a great champion that's in a leadership mm. position. Um, but when that person leaves, they're like, oh, what happens to our DEI efforts now? DEI should not be just one person's responsibility or one person championing the cause. And that's why we we make progress. Um, the, the second aspect of that sustainable stage is to make sure that our efforts can persist over time and changes in business, right? So, you know, as we're thinking about the economy, right? Uh, you know, lots of people ask me, well, when the economy has a downturn, do you see DEI efforts go out the window? Unfortunately, yes, right? Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, we cannot say your efforts are sustainable over time if you know they will change so quickly based on things like a change in leadership or shifts in the economy, because we're, we're always going to have those ups and downs of the economy, right? But if we're, we're people first and we're, and we're centering um, our values in that way, then DEI can't be the first thing to go. And so 
sustainable is where we want to be, but we're always having to kind of create that feedback loop of making sure that what we're doing today um, is working for our internal external stakeholders. You know, maybe what worked 10 or 15 years ago may need to shift. New generations come into the workplace every 15 to 20 years, right? And so we have to make sure that we are, um, you know, always advocating to make sure everyone feels included, that we're changing with the times. And so again, we can't just kind of rest on our laurels um, because we did some good work a decade yeah. ago. We got to make sure that we're we're, we're st- uh, continuously evolving. And that's, I think, part of the, there's the, the internal realities of organizations that are always shifting and changing. There's the environment that we're operating in and the businesses that we're, we're doing. Those are always shifting. But then you've got, as you were saying there at the end, you also have the reality that what it means to be diverse, equitable, and inclusive itself also evolves and changes and grows, ultimately, hopefully becoming even more inclusive over time. But that has shifted. And sometimes those shifts seem to happen slow, 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 and then fast as they gain traction and momentum. But those things are shifting as well. And so there's never that sense of we've arrived and finished the work. It's always ongoing, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's exactly right. And, you know, what I talk about in the book is that my hope is that the challenges we are trying to overcome shift over time, right? And so I hope that we're not talking about the same, you know, diversity pipeline, for example, issues um, 10 years from now. I hope that we figured those things out, but I hope that we're talking about new issues and new challenges based on the future of work and how people want to work and how people want to experience the workplace. Um, And so that's my hope that I know that we'll never be done, but I do hope our conversation evolves and grows and we don't get stuck in this place of uh, continuing to, to, you know, have the same conversations over and over. Uh, I second that hope and I, 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 and hope that everyone listening right now is committed to working to make that hope reality. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Ella F. Washington, author of The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. And so we've been talking about the five stages, although the fifth stage is not the final stage, as we were just discussing, uh, of organizations, DEI progress and the journey. And you were talking about the future and what you hope 10 years will look like in the evolving workplace and so on. And one of the questions that you've asked so many companies is, what does a workplace utopia look like to you? And I am just fascinated by the question and the experiences that you've asked there. And so it's, it's had me thinking for a while, like, how would I answer that? How would I answer it now? How would I answer it 10, 15 years ago? How would I answer it 30 years ago? And so a digression for just a moment, because I know that you'll have some insights for us here. I'm from Colorado originally. And as we were discussing pre-show, I'm now living right up the street from you. You're in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm just north of you up in Laurel, Maryland right now. It's humid here. Even in the winter, it's damp and, and humid. And it's a totally different kind of air than I grew up with in Colorado, which is dry, high desert when now that I'm in Maryland, when I go back to Colorado and I get off that plane for the first time, it's like, whoa, I'm breathing something different. This is, you know, we become accustomed and acclimated to the air that we're breathing. When I think about that question of what's a workplace utopia look like to you? One of the challenges I have in answering that question is the air that I breathe. I'm a middle-aged white man Uh, Yeah, I've had all my life experiences and the things that I've grown up with, but those aren't what everybody else has grown up with. And so the way that I might answer that question without a variety of experiences and perspectives and everything, it's dry air or it's humid air. It's not all the kinds of air that are available. So I am curious. So the digression through the air, I hope the metaphor makes sense for everybody, but there's that sense to me that corporate culture is like that. We've existed Mm -hmm. in cultures that aren't equitable or inclusive for so long. It can be challenging to imagine the alternative. Mm -hmm. And yet that's what leadership and vision. It always starts with the dream, with a vision of what's possible and the hope that we can get there. So with all of that said, Dr. Ella, I am curious for you, what a truly diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace looks like for you when you think of that, your answer to that question that you've asked yeah. all those companies. 
The idea of workplace utopia is not one of a perfect workplace. No perfect workplace exists, right? Um, and it acknowledges that all of us will have a bit of a different perspective to your point about the air we're used to. But, you know, the work of DEI is so challenging. I like to, to think about what's possible. Like, what is our North Star? What are we working towards, right? And that's why I've asked so many leaders this question of what's your workplace utopia? And every answer is different. Um, and so for me, when I think about, you know, my own workplace utopia, I am very specific. I'm sp speaking about diversity in terms of differences in demographics, experiences, um, all being welcomed and encouraged. I'm thinking about inclusion where people feel, you know, a sense of belonging as, as if they're, they're wanted to be there. And, and not only are they valued for who they are as a person, but they're valued for the contributions um, that they're bringing with that unique lens that each and every person has. And then when I'm thinking about equity, I am thinking about it is super clear that every single person in this organization has the opportunity to thrive. You know, policies and practices are transparent. Um, there is accountability. There are consistent feedback loops to make sure that things are done in a fair and equitable fashion. And so those are the things that I want to see. Um, and, and that is from a, from a, conceptual perspective. But I think as we go a little bit deeper and get to the feelings of it, you know, I want to be in a workplace where I can be my, my full, goofy, authentic self. I like to laugh. I always say, you know, if I've laughed once today, it's, it's been probably a good day. Um, you know, I want to be in an environment where I can speak up if things don't feel like they're, they're right. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I can, I feel safety in that. I want to be in an environment that values and respects, um, the knowledge that I bring, the experience that I bring. And so all of these tidbits kind of, you know, paint a picture. If you're thinking about like watercolors, right, you're starting to paint this picture with this and that, and they kind of blend together and everyone's will look a little bit different. But once you have that vision at the forefront of your mind, it becomes much more clear what you're working towards. And so my idea is that if, if organizational leaders can all have their own workplace utopia in mind, as well as ask their team members what their team members want to see, it gets us closer to this collective vision of what could be possible. So no, we may not get the air exactly right because we can't have you know 10 different types of air within war organization but we can start to understand you know what about that humid air really feels good for people how do we replicate that in another way what about that dry air uh, makes people feel you know included and how do we replicate that in another way and so that is the idea uh, behind workplace utopia mm, the, the element that you were talking about of being able to show up and be your authentic self and if every human being could have that experience, what's possible. Uh, it's recalling to mind one of the uh, stories that you talk about uh, in the book was Best Buy. And <clears throat> I remember you, you interviewed, uh, gosh, was it the former CEO who said that their definition of the workplace was, or the utopia was a workplace where people can be themselves. And, but the result of that is what they called human magic. And I just loved that phrase is what do you get when you have a workplace where everybody can truly be themselves? Comfortably, you get human magic. Yeah. And, and I love that, you know, human magic, um, idea. And what the research will tell us is that human magic leads to higher team performance, better decisions being made, people staying in an organization longer. And so, you know, it's not just a feeling. It is a feel-good feeling when everyone feels like they can be their authentic self. Um, but there are tangible outcomes that help mm -hmm. with the business imperatives that we have. You know, people feeling they can be their authentic selves means they speak up more. And so they call out when, you know, maybe there's we're doing something that puts us at risk, right? They feel safe to do that. Um, you know, people will share their ideas, their crazy ideas that are off the wall. You know, they'll feel comfortable sharing that because there is a sense of psychological safety that they're not going to get penalized for saying something that's out of the norm, right? And so there's this feeling 
that happens, but then there are the outcomes that leaders also care about. And both of those things um, can coexist and, and should be at the forefront of leaders' minds when they're thinking about, okay, why should I be doing this? Yes, it's the right thing to do. Yes, it feels good uh, when things go well, because it doesn't always feel good <laughs> when things don't go well. Um, but also it helps our business be better. Absolutely. So Dr. Ella, I can't imagine there's anyone listening to the show right now saying, oh, I don't want that. No, we're all on board. I want that. As we're in different roles from CEO to frontline supervisor, wherever somebody is right now listening, what recommendations do you have for people who really do want to enroll in that journey and get themselves, I want to be contributing to greater levels of DE&I helping our organization move through those stages, wherever we might be um, as an organization. What are some of the suggestions that you give leaders who are trying to figure out their next step on that, that journey? So there's a, a dual process that happens in every organization. You have the organizational journey. Where is the organization in terms of their DEI strategy and implementation and goals? Um, and then you have the individual journey. And for leaders, it can be particularly challenging if those journeys are not coinciding. So the first thing you have to do is look internally, right? And to understand where are you on your own journey and, and what are you trying to accomplish? How do you want to make an impact? In my book, I talk about the three Ps, uh, purpose, pitfalls, and progress as um, some North Star examples of things you can always be checking back on. So, and, and you can think about this both at the individual level as well as the organizational level. So when you think about purpose, what am I trying to achieve? You know, what is really going to make me feel like I'm progressing on my journey? What do I need to work on? Is it that I need to be a little more knowledgeable on pronouns and using them and why they're important and why they show advocacy for the LGBT community? Is it that, you know, I really want to be more comfortable with those uncomfortable conversations? You know, um, whatever your purpose is, you got to define it for you. It, it can't just be because everyone else is doing because we know that tends to lose momentum over time. So first is, is for your purpose. What are you trying to achieve and why? Um, the second is your pitfalls. What has held you back in the past? Mm -hmm. And it's holding that mirror up to yourself into your organization and saying, okay, we said that we want to have a more diverse leadership population, but yet all of the past five leadership positions have been, you know, internal hires or based on specifically based on references. And we really didn't have any diverse slates of candidates. Okay. Maybe we need to go beyond those pathways we've done in the past at individual level. Maybe, you know, you made a mistake in the past and you misgendered someone, or, you know, you said something that was a microaggression and now you're just uncomfortable with the whole thing. You got to be honest about that. Like, what are our pitfalls? What's holding us back from success? What's holding us back from getting to that purpose? And then the last thing is, what does progress look like? It's not a, a you know, just an endpoint and we're done, as we've been talking about from the organizational level, even as a an, an individual level, you will always be working to be better. This is a lifelong uh, journey of you know, making sure that you're showing up in the world in, in your best possible way. Um, and especially as a leader, that you're leading in ways that are people first and human centered. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that third P is progress. What does progress look like? And what's really important are what are your short-term and long-term goals? You know, no one knows everything there is to know about DEI, not even myself. And so, you know, think about it, you know, what would progress look like? Are you, do you want to listen to a podcast once a month on one of these topics? Okay, that's tangible, trackable progress. The same way an organization can set short-term and long-term goals, you can do the same thing at your own level. Um, and it just takes a, a level of intention. You'd have to take time to think through these things as well as a level of personal accountability. So maybe tapping in an accountability partner or hopefully, you know, your organization is along a similar journey and that is where you connect with, you know, how you get involved to support the organization's DEI journey. And one of those uh, suggestions I might add is you're looking for ways of taking that journey yourself is to get this book, Dr. Ella F. Washington's The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion, 
because the 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 way that it's set up the the chapters uh, the, it's a story at a time so you really get to take a little bit of a dive into an organization and what their work has looked like and um, the different stages and you you do such a good job of walking us through that in a way that sticks for for people and so as you're looking for resources certainly want to add this one into the mix all right we've been talking at a, a fairly high level i want to dive into a little bit some of the um, elements some of the stories and, and things that came out um and there are so many and we have limited time. So I've got some that I would, I would be interested in talking about, but I'm curious from your perspective, um, Dr. Ella, what was one of the more profound or meaningful stories that, that you experienced or in your discussions? And there are so many good ones, but I'm curious for you, what comes to mind? That's us. That's like asking a parent who their favorite child is. <laughs> I know. So. I didn't say. I didn't say favorite. I said one of the more profound. So yeah, we recognize there's five that are all there and very profound. But if you were to share one yeah. right now, um, of the nine uh companies that I I did a deep dive on for this book, I would say Denny's had a really dynamic story. Mm. Um, they're an American-based restaurant chain. Um, and you know their story is really dynamic because they started from such a challenging place in the 1990s, yeah. having a huge uh, racial discrimination class action lawsuit. And not only from a legal and compliance perspective uh, were they damaged, but their reputation took a huge hit. Um, they are headquartered in, in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I'm from Durham, North Carolina originally. So growing up, I remember seeing Denny's all over the place um, and also their reputation of, uh, not sure we want to go there. You know, they're racist there. And so I start the chapter with, you know, a late night TV show, uh, a spiff of, of talking about Denny's being racist. And so it was like a known thing back in the nineties. Um, and you know, even till today I've, I've, you know, shared the book with my family and they're like, I still don't like Denny's man. <laughs> so it's one of those things that it's hard when you have those reputational challenges, it's hard, but that's what makes their story so dynamic is that you know, many companies has, have faced uh, DEI-related lawsuits, uh, especially around discrimination. Um, and many of them have kind of checked the box, paid the money, and maybe done whatever they had to do from a, a compliance perspective. But Denny's has spent the last 30 years really being committed to change internally and externally. Um, you know, they are an organization that has not only, you know, taken their lessons learned from that trying place in the 90s, but has continued to always seek to be better. So, you know, they're an organization that they're, they're now win many awards in the diversity and inclusion space, but they don't stop. You know, they're always trying to continue to evolve. And how can we be a little bit better? How do we make sure that those uh, things of the past stay in the past? And I really admire that because, you know, you, you get to a place where you feel like, okay, we're good enough. We, we can focus on something else, but I really have not seen that um, in Denny's journey. And uh, I have to say, given my last touch base with them, I learned something too on that. I did was not aware of all of the, the work and, and effort that's been made there. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. The, uh, the journeys that, that different organizations are on are so interesting. And one of the ones that uh, stood out for me, and I wanted to ask you about best practices on um, is, so we've, we've touched just briefly about Best Buy. We just talked about somebody in, in restaurant and food. Uh, was Slack, uh, the, you know, the, the messaging, instant messaging software platform. Um, and obviously it does much more. I don't want to, all my Slack users are people listening. I understand Slack. I, I use Slack. I understand <laughs> oversimplifying. They had a very decentralized culture. And part of what you talk about in their journey was how they go about doing DE&I work with a decentralized leadership structure. And there's a lot more of that in a lot more organizations these days, particularly as we have more global remote workforce, particularly in knowledge work kind of, of situations. And I'm curious if you have seen uh, particular best practices when it comes to DEI efforts in a decentralized leadership environment. Uh, if there are some things that work more than others as organizations are looking at this kind of thing. 
The first thing that is required in a, in a more decentralized organization, by the way, this is for every organization, but especially in a decentralized organization, is a mindset shift. There has to be a complete mindset shift that DEI is everyone's responsibility, from every frontline employee to every senior leader, up and down, top to down, you know, and bottom out. Everyone has to see it as their responsibility to create a culture of care, a culture of inclusion, um, to call out places where they're inequities, right? To, you know, bring in diversity when possible, and also to create an environment of diversity of thought and, and celebrate divergent thinking, right? In organizational environments where everyone sees it as their responsibility and as connected to the core values, then it's not just HR's thing. It's not just a chief diversity officer's thing. It's it's truly everyone's responsibility. Now, everyone has a different level of accountability, um, of course, based on their role and if they're leaders or not, and you know, um, those types of things. But what Slack did really well is. Uh, really take advantage of those grassroots efforts with their employee resource groups. Um, but they didn't stop there. Many organizations have employee resource groups. Um, they also made sure that every single manager understood what their expectation was, were to be culture carriers within the organization and change makers when needed. They also opened multiple lines of communication. So one of the critical elements of success and also failure is the, a feedback loop. Is there an open line of communication between the most senior leadership teams and that frontline group of employees? And how Slack does that is through Slack, of course, but also um, through charging those managers with being uh, that, that critical element of that feedback loop. And that is so important. So many organizations miss the mark because they don't include managers as, you know, part of the most uh, important element of a DEI strategy because managers see it all. Managers are touching those frontline employees, um, but they also are the ones that are supposed to push down the strategy that comes from uh, uh, above. And so I think Slack did a great job of, uh, you know, activating grassroots, including managers, and also making sure that, you know, their culture from the start was one that valued inclusion, equity, and diversity. And, you know, one of the, the benefits of being a newer organization, they're not new, but their newer organization is they, they learn from the mistakes of, of the past. And so, you know, their CEO started the organization with some of those principles in mind. You know, as you're mentioning the feedback loop that is so vital, one of the, the things that we talk about in, in Courageous Cultures is um, not just having an open door for communication, but that we're actively, the leaders at every level are actively going out and asking so that we're actively inquiring about, and it's not just related to DEI, but certainly within that realm, uh, that we're act actively going out and asking, what is your experience? What is happening? What's working? What's not? What's one thing that could be better, more effective for you? You know, those kinds of, of things. So when we're talking about that feedback loop, I want to leave our listeners, it's an active feedback loop. It's not a passive like, oh, you know, you can always talk to me. Absolutely. You know, uh, many managers think about this work as an extra thing to do, a thing to do when they finish their whole to-do list. And that's the wrong way to think about this work um, of, of culture, this work of, you know, cultivating relationships with your team members, this work of inclusion and belonging. Um, you know, it, it should be at the top of your list. <laughs> and, but the, the problem is, is that, you know, managers are so stretched thin, right? And so they're often thinking about, okay, what are the five things I have to do, you know, by the end of the year to make sure that I get a, a positive performance evaluation, that my compensation is secure, that my uh, pending promotion happens. Sure. And if the organization is not making it so that those uh, people-centered uh, behaviors are those that managers are held accountable for and rewarded for and also, you know, reprimanded for when they're not doing those, then those are the things that will fall to the bottom of that never-ending to-do list. And if you're like me, you never get to the bottom of your to-do list. You just make a new one the next day, right? No, nobody week. ever gets to the bottom of their list. We will die, all of us, with unfinished lists. So what yeah, is Yeah, so what we got to make sure that we're in, in incorporating it in our everyday activities. And 
you know, that's part of the reason why I use stories in, in my book, because it shouldn't be this big thing. Like, you know, sometimes we have to have big conversations and big moments. Like when George Floyd was murdered. Yes, that was a big moment big conversations need to happen. But most of this stuff happens every day at a more micro level. Yeah. Um, and whether it's a microaggression that's happening that needs to be course corrected, or it's just the opportunity, like how do I bring divergent thinking onto my teams? Is it that I just, that I stop and play devil's advocate that I encourage other people to do the same, that I find multiple ways of brainstorming, not just the first person who speaks up in the room, but let's think about, you know, can we write down our ideas? and I'll bring them or find other ways to brainstorm, to bring everyone into the conversation. It's those more micro everyday moments of inclusion that really make the biggest impact. All those small moments add up. All right. We're talking with Dr. Ella F. Washington, author of The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. Uh, so, so much more. And I've got a few more questions for you, uh, Dr. Ella, but where can we find you, connect with you, find the book, any other of the resources that you've got available? Tell us where to go. Absolutely. You can head over to the necessaryjourney.com to find more information about the book. And the book is available on every major platform. So your Amazons, your Barnes and Nobles, your indie bookstores. Um, it's also available on Audible. So however you like to consume your, your books, um, it is available. So hopefully you'll, you'll check it out. I have to ask, did you get to read it? Of course. Yes. All right. <laughs> Good. So you've listened to Dr. Ella for what are we at 40 minutes or so today. So now you can get the book and listen on Audible. So obviously you're a listener if you're listening. All right. Fantastic. The one of the mistaken assumptions that you point out, and uh, I, I thought this was important in the book, is that you you point out the assumption that some folks will make is that businesses owned by people who aren't in the dominant culture group don't need to put as much work into DE&I. And that's a mistake that you, you call out. As, that's a mistaken assumption. It's not necessarily the case. So um, can you, for those for, for whom that might be going, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Can you walk us through why that is? Certainly. Um, you know, we often think about diversity specifically as the, the big three, I like to say, race, gender, and sexual orientation. And those are important concepts. And, you know, they have historical reasons why, why they are generally at the forefront of conversations. However, they are not the only uh, facets of diversity. We should be thinking about diversity in a much more broad way, um, in a way that really honors the fact that we all are bringing diverse perspectives, experiences, um, and the like to our organizations. Um, we're hired for a reason. And so, you know, what are those things that make us unique from a knowledge and skills perspective, but also from a background and experience uh, perspective? And so, you know, you may be a women-owned business, for example, um, but that doesn't mean you uh, have to, you get to ignore, you know, challenges around equity. Maybe you don't have a gender equity challenge because you're really hyper-focused on that, but you may have other equity challenges. You may not have uh, diversity as defined in other ways, right? And so, you know, the work is of DEI is not to point fingers or, or make any one dominant identity group feel like they have to do all the work. Um, there are some spaces where more work has to be done. I mean, many organizations have highlighted where there are huge gaps in gender equity. There are huge gaps in racial equity. So we are not downplaying that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, even when those things are not maybe at our forefront, because maybe we have an organizational environment that has addressed those, we still have to make sure people feel included, right? And that is not solely based on, you know, those demographic um, experiences. And so it, it's a mindset thing um, that, you know, if we are always curious to, to use your words from earlier, if we're always curious about how to make sure that we're creating environments where every single person has the opportunity and ability to thrive, then we'll all be doing the work. And, you know, for some, the, the mountain is a bit higher than others. I don't want to downplay that. Um, if your organization is ripe with racism or sexism or homophobia, then yes, Yes, your mountain may be a bit steeper than climb than another organization, but every person and every organization has room to grow. And I think that mindset shift is just super important um, in this space. It's the, the, the mindset shift I'm hearing you talk about is not taking it for granted or assuming that because of any XYZ 
situation that we don't have that work to do. That's something that every one of us needs to to embrace and and be having in the forefront of our conversations and thinking. Absolutely. Mm. All right. With, oh gosh, we are getting really close on time here. Okay, I got to get one more question here. I asked you about profound. I am curious now about surprise. Was there in your work, and maybe it made it in the book, maybe it didn't, but is there a story or an experience that you had that surprised you that, gosh, I really wasn't expecting that and, and what you might've taken away from that? So my interview with Vaughn Weaver uh, from uh, the CEO of Uncle Nearest, which is a, a whiskey brand out of Tennessee, um, was so dynamic in my perspective. And it, it surprised me so much, not only because of when you think about from a historical perspective, and, and I'll have the readers, you have to go read the relationship between Uncle Nearest and Jack Daniels and how the two brands were intertwined in um, the years of slavery and after and what they've done today. But I, I, I found it so fascinating how this history um, that stems from a place of pain of slavery stems from a place of pain in terms of, you know, a, a man, a black man not getting his due for a recipe that he created, which is now, a, you know, a billion dollar brand um, around the world, Jack Daniels, but how they have used that story, that narrative, and created something special in the company Uncle Nearest, but also the two companies together working together to make the industry of, of wine and spirits more diverse and more equitable and more inclusive. So not only that, but I also think the subtext, when you read, uh, you know, Fawn shares a story about making assumptions about a neighbor. Um, and he happened to be a, a white man um, who, by his appearance and maybe his demeanor, just seemed like, you know, her mother-in-law said, seems like somebody who doesn't like Black people. And she was curious enough and said, well, how do you know that? Mm. Um, have you asked him? And of course, you know, mother-in-law said, no, I just, you know, he just seems like he doesn't. And the, the story goes on in, in the book to talk about how she went up and talked to this guy and he debunked every stereotype that one would have on him. And he was very open, very friendly, and even listening to one of her favorite uh, R&B songs. And so with that, I thought that was so not only surprising, but inspiring. You know, we all have bias and stereotypes. We all make assumptions, but what if we, again, those micro moments, what if we take those micro moments every single day and question some of our own assumptions, question the things that maybe we've always thought to be true and take a chance, have that conversation, you know, befriend that person, reach out. Um, and I think that's where getting back to, you know, the earlier term of human magic, I think that's where that happens. I love it. Uh, that That's a good one. I was, I was curious which one you might share. So that's a, that's a fun one. Readers or listeners, uh, you, if you're a reader, get the book, read it. If you're a listener, get the book, listen to it. Uh, but there are many, many more stories of that. And I got to tell you, my takeaway from this set of stories, uh, Dr. Ella is hope. And you were saying the way that that one inspired you, but that for me is all of them because they all show the journey. They all show the different way we're all working this together to get there. And so I appreciate you sharing these stories with us, putting them into the book. The book is The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. You can get it everywhere. We've been talking with Dr. Ella Washington, the author, uh, Dr. Ella F. Washington. Dr. Ella, thank you so much for being a guest on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul today. It's It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to future conversations. As do I. All right. Listeners, Question your assumptions, build that relationship, trust yourself, keep learning, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.